Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. I have the pleasure of speaking today with um, the one, the only, uh, Dr. Jack Hawley, uh, who's at Columbia. Hello, Jack, and welcome back to the program. Uh, hello, Raj. It's great to be back. And um, <laughs> I should probably say things, not by way of correction, but let's say emendation. First of all, Columbia indeed, but I'm actually on the Barnard faculty. The relationship between Barnard and Columbia is a fascinating and deeply ambiguous thing, Barnard being a women's institution that's part of Columbia uh, as, as a sort of larger whole. So that's one. And the other thing is the matter of there being only one, one and only Dr. Jack Hawley. That is actually patently false. There is another Jack Hawley, but I'm not sure whether he has a doctorate. And he does indeed write about India. Crazy. He's a devotee of Satisai Baba, and he has a website, and I've never been able to actually make real live contact with him, but he exists. And uh, he actually uses the name Jack Hawley when he publishes, whereas I cover my identity by calling myself John Stratton Hawley. So these things are deeply complicated. And it is this very nuance to which you bring uh, to your work, um, which is Krishna's Playground, uh, Vrindavan in the 21st Century, written by Dr. John Stratton Hawley, sometimes known as Jack, who is officially, uh, I believe, the Clarito Professor of Religion at Barnard College, somewhat loosely associated with Columbia University. Oh, deeply, uh, not just loosely. Yeah, it's really, yeah. Like I'm the director of graduate studies in Columbia for the religion department at the moment. It's old and not always contentious relationship. It's a good one. Good, good. So you've written um, uh, 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 a fascinating, textured, uh, I'd say far-reaching um, study of something called Vrindavan uh, in the 21st century. What is this Vrindavan that your book is about? Well, that, of course, is the question of the book. And uh, it emerged because I had been living in some kind of Vrindavan for the last, well, almost 50 years now, working on uh, various things, uh, drinking the atmosphere and loving being there. So what is Vrindavan? Well, Vrindavan is a thing of the mind. It is a thing of the mind, a thing of worship. That's to say, it is the place, literally speaking, the Vrinda forest or the, the wilderness of the basil bush or basil tree, where Krishna is um, believed to have spent his youth. And uh, Hindus disagree as to whether that has a sort of, how shall I say it, a factual, this worldly point of reference as the number one thing that characterizes Vrindavan, or whether Vrindavan exists in the mind in a sort of field of spiritual awareness that is called to mind every time a song about Vrindavan is sung. But there's no question about the fact that Vrindavan is one of the most important places, places in every possible sense for uh, many, many Hindus uh, living all over the world today. I had the luck to come into Vrindavan back in 1970, what was it, 1974, 75, where I was living for a year, uh, doing research on the Raslilas, the Krishna dramas of Vrindavan, and also on the great poet Surdas, who is the sort of lead poet of Britvasha, a member of the Hindi language family. That's how it all began for me. 
And you've been back since, have you not? A lot. A lot. I try to get back every year if I possibly can. And the, you know, the COVID virus has now thrown a big monkey wrench into that. Not because I had planned to be back in the course of the spring, but just um, just because of its monkey wrenchness, not knowing when I'd be able to get back or what's going on on the ground in Vrindavan. It's been a deeply unsettling time. It's made me realize how much, so to speak, the physical Vrindavan really matters to me and not just the Vrindavan of the mind. Well, it seems that at least Krishna held off the pandemic until the book was done. Which... There we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it's uh, 45 years or so in the making. Um, uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about um, the actual research you engage in. I mean, I think a lot of this book is, was researched, maybe even unconsciously, but certainly there, were, uh, there was, uh, like, what were you examining? What were you doing in Vrindavan to write this book? As I guess I hinted, my work is focused uh, mostly on um, the Sang Vrindavan, the Vrindavan of poetry. Um, but that indeed takes me into places where the songs of Vrindavan are sung, and many of those are right there in Vrindavan. In increasingly, since the 1990s and the liberalization of the Indian economy, or the 1980s and the... Um, invention, you could say, of a relatively cheap Indian automobile. At that point in time, the 80s and 90s, Vrindavan really began to change. We, one can trace it back further. It was in the 1970s that ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, established its beautiful great temple in Vrindavan, so that suddenly you had running around the town a whole bunch of gringos just like me, you know, Godas, um, speaking English better than they spoke Hindi, if they spoke Hindi at all, it was, you know. So if we sort of look back in time, it turns out that there were a lot of, as it turned out, really um, deeply important changes that were happening in the religious culture of Vrindavan that more or less coincide with my time there. And they accelerated as time went on. What I found as I, in recent years, well, let me start that sentence again. I think I tried for a very long time to shut out the incursions of modernity as I tried to uh, live in the Vrindavan that would have existed in the 16th century or early 17th century, the time when a poet like Surdas was alive. But increasingly, as I lived in Vrindavan, it became clear that that was a sort of act of moral cowardice that it was time to look around and try to make sense of the Vrindavan of today. So that's the genesis of the book. There are a number of fascinating threads regarding the very modernity that you you, you first hoped, perhaps the past or issue in some way that, that then became the very object of study that, um, that constitutes this book. There, there are many uh, different threads. Um, do you want to talk about some of the trends that you study, or at least one of them? Sure. Sure. Maybe I should say something about how I thought I was going to be entering into this project, which is quite different, as always, from the way it turned out. The, actually, the first book I ever published was uh, in cooperation with Sri Vatsa Goswami, who is my fabulous mentor and uh, colleague and friend living in Vrindavan, one of, and, and a 
one of the old Goswami families who have been in Vrindavan since the 16th century. Mishilat and I worked on a book back that was published back in 1981 called At Play with Krishna, in which we translated, um, well, I translated a set of uh, Ras Leelas, Krishna performances that were happening in Vrindavan at that time. It occurred to me maybe five or seven years ago that it might be a good thing to just bring that book up to date because so much had changed in Vrindavan. But and that was how I wrote the grant proposal that was the start of the book. But what I found was that I was overwhelmed not so much by changes in the performance of the Ras Lila, though they are real, but by <coughs> other changes that have engulfed Vrindavan. So you asked what those are. Well, a short list. Where should we start? Let's start with the peacocks. Mm. Oh, I'm sure this is immediately coming into your mind. Um, Bhagavan Sri Krishna, the Lord Krishna, is often compared to a peacock, and there are always reasons to ask why this is so. Is it that beautiful deep blue color, which we don't even know how to name? If you look at a peacock, you'll see that the throat of this gorgeous bird is many, many colors of black to blue. Similarly, Krishna. Or is it the call of the peacock, that piercing call that goes out, especially in the rainy season, which will soon be upon us? Um, anyway, in, in, in so many ways, Krishna is to us what the peacock is to birds as a species. The time has now come where in downtown Vrindavan, let's say, the Vrindavan where I lived, where the peacock is no longer to be seen. Vrindavan without a peacock, just imagine. Or let's take another animal, um, the tortoise or turtle, which is the, the vehicle, the vahana of the river Yamuna, as she's always been understood. And that's because there are so many turtles in, in the river Yamuna. But now there are not so many turtles in Vrindavan. And why is that the case? The causes in those two instances are actually a bit different. The peacocks are afraid of the monkeys. And there's so many monkeys in Vrindavan that no one dares go to Vrindavan wearing glasses. Those glasses will be gone in a fraction of a second. The monkeys grab them off your face. As for the turtles, the Yamuna is so polluted that turtles cannot survive in Vrindavan anymore. Or not until very recently when COVID set in. So actually there have been amazing developments that I myself have not even seen. But those two, you know, those two... Um, inhabitants of the natural world are an indication of the fact that the Vrindavan, which is, uh, you know, beloved in strong song and story and in miniature paintings and just everywhere all over the net, no longer exists in Vrindavan itself. So the question is, yikes, what do we do about that? Or how do we even think about it? So I've mentioned some of the things now. One, one other major factor is the simple press of population and of the automobile and of um, the liberalized economy in India, which puts money in people's pockets. That's a good thing. And means that uh, residents of many cities, especially Delhi, but many, many cities want to have a piece of Vrindavan themselves. So you have this enormous real estate boom, which is changing the character of the town fundamentally. I mentioned uh, ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, 
when that temple that I referred to was completed in 1976, it was at the outer border of Brindavan, a place called Ramanreti, so celebrated for the particular quality of dust or dirt that uh, is a Brajkiraj, the sort of Reti in this instance, uh, a treasured feature of the landscape. Now, that temple is in the geographical center of Vrindavan. And while it was on the periphery of anyone's pilgrimage path when I came to town, it's now a major destination. So both in physical terms and in cultural terms, everything has changed since I came there. Now, you know, a young guy like you will think, well, that makes sense, 50 years, that's a long time. But I'm a lot older than you are, and 50 years doesn't seem so long to me. If you look at the history of the species, just obviously, the just to imagine what changes can happen in the course of 50 years, it's just mind-boggling. And it makes you ask, of course, if this can happen in 50 years or 20 or 30, what is coming down the pike? So that was ultimately the impetus for the book, and I just tried to lay out various uh, aspects of that as I put together. Well, um, thank you for thinking that I'm young. Uh, undergraduate students may disagree with you, but I suppose all things are relative. Um, <laughs> oh, well, uh, one, uh, uh, indeed, uh, our times are, 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 are acceler- the change is accelerating in recent years, and who knows what the next 50 years will hold for Vrindavan uh, or beyond. There are a number of, I think, really interesting uh, themes, questions, big ideas um, that your work touches on. Um, it seems to me that your your research has consistently been um, appreciative of, uh, interested in uh, embodied experience. Would you say so? I would say so. I wouldn't have thought to put that label to it myself, but I would have to admit. And so what are you, what does this book, and there are a number of themes, you can dive into whatever you feel is appropriate, uh, but uh, the uh, it, there's lots of real life data in this book and it nevertheless um, touches on uh, very large questions having to do with embodied experience, having to do with modernity, having to do with sacred space, um, having to do with, you know, the mythic versus the historic. Um, And could you give us a sense of what you think some of the uh, key takeaways or arguments or themes of this work are? Well, sure. So taking the body, I guess, as the, our bodies as the model, um, I am hardly a physician, but we're all having to think about what actually constitutes a body these days, particularly someone like me who lives in New York and who two months ago, in part because of my age, uh, fled New York for a safer environment. As it happens, I find myself a part of a just infinitesimally lucky population who a was able to leave New York, and now I'm at the, I'm I'm looking out the window at a beautiful lake in northwestern Michigan, the lower, the lower peninsula. 
water. What is it that is the sort of power of water, even the vision of water, just to see it, that appeals to us in our bodily form? I don't know the answer to that, but it's a part of the mystique that's always been Vrindavan because it's built on the Yamuna at a place in the Yamuna when the Yamuna takes a sort of almost a, a U-turn, it, a big swoop out uh, in an easterly direction and then comes back around what then becomes a peninsula and flows farther south. This mystery of human beings' relationship to water in a bodily fashion, is part of what I think underlies the experience of Vrindavan in the first place. So let's look at that water. It's not as pure as the crystal lake that I look at because it's deeply polluted by industrial effluence farther up and by the sewage that flows into that river. Um, certainly at Delhi, uh, which is just upriver, and at Vrindavan itself, and in many, many places along the way. And then you have dams. So the, you know, the, the strength of, the, of this particular body of water just isn't what it was before. What does it mean to go to a pilgrimage place? Let me start the sentence again. When I first went to Vrindavan, it was the first urge of just about every visitor or pilgrim, and also residents themselves, first of all, to just bathe in the Yamuna and probably take a little bit of that water and drink it, making her a part of your own body. Now, scarcely anyone drinks from the water of the Yamuna. It's poison. And very few people bathe in her either. So what is it to live? You know, What is it to be in command of bodies that can no longer interact with this space, which was always held up both in the place itself and in its literary and musical representations as the place where a body would be at home, would be saved from the sort of ups and downs of urban experience, saved from what you have to do to make a living, saved from the tyranny of your in-laws, just be a body out there with Krishna. Man, the place has just completely changed these days. So for me, one of the real frontiers of the book was to try to think about what it is to be uh, a Vrindavan-related body in the world today. And one of the things that you see happening around you if you're in Vrindavan is the increasing theme parkization, if I can call it that, of the Vrindavan experience that pilgrims have. If it's the case that Vrindavan is now so separated from the river, and so, um, so deeply threatened by, uh, let me call it pollution of all, of all kinds, well, one can understand how uh, some of the major pilgrimage sites in Vrindavan add a theme park dimension so as to call forth that more pure, more primordial sense of what the town stands for. But, but look at what's happening there. It's not that, you know, Virtual representation is foreign to being human beings. We're, you know, we're specialists in that. But to see it increasingly just overtaking what it means to build a new temple in Vrindavan is a pretty astonishing thing. So a question about Vrindavan and I guess about religion in general in the world today, not to mention experience itself, is to what extent are we being just engulfed by, suffocated 
by our own taste for virtuality. What bodies left? This is um, related to a theme that comes up a lot in conversations. Um, I mean, off of podcasts and in, in the real world uh, with um, colleagues, you know, uh, students, clients, what have you, about uh, the ethos of our times is one of disembodiment, um, uh, virtual connection. And this really, uh, the ways in which we can, for example, connect in the age of COVID-19, I mean, there, um, it's nothing short of miraculous that we can have uh, an experience with someone across the globe uh, at our laptop. But nevertheless, there's something very different from an embodied, say, learning environment versus one that's remote. And so, so that theme that you're talking about here is, I think, so far reaching in our times. Um, with respect to what you're, to what you, to your research, to, to what you're showing in your book, would you say this is an ethos of reflection, of lamentation, of intrigue, of? Um, is it fair to say there's 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 a, a thread of lamentation in this book? It's absolutely fair to say that I cannot, I cannot disavow that i know it's out of fashion to lament the past you know this is something that old people do oh i remember when the world was dot 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 well i do remember what the world was dot 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 and it's not that all of it was better but some of it really was deeply better the 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 threats posed by leaving just COVID aside from the, though it may be related, threats posed by climate change are just, I mean, I'm just waking up to that actually relatively recently, but people have been seeing this coming for a while. And it's, uh, what can I say? It's, um, it's more apocalyptic than we want to think. So one of the, if, if this book has a purpose, it's a kind of a, you know, it has lots of pictures. It's an effort just to try to document, um, to be a point in time for Brindavan. As it seemed to me in these particular years, it's all just over the course of the last two years. But if it could have some kind of an impact on, what shall I say, on trying to think about what we have to lose by being the way we've allowed ourselves to be. I'd be very pleased about that. So the book ends up with a kind of, um, I use the word plea. It, it certainly has a lamentation quality about it, as, as you said. But on the other hand, I hope it would be fair to say that you, every time I, I am in Brindavan, you know, I don't sit around moping and wishing for the old days. No, the place is just full of life. It's You never know what's going to, it's like New York that way. You never know what's going to be coming down the street at you. People are great. So, you know, the crowds are just enormous, but that's a thrilling thing if you're in India. And people adapt to their new situation. So it's all good. It's all so good that it's very hard to look at the underlying realities and say, wait, what's being lost here? Let me give you an example. One thing that um, that we haven't had to worry about yet, there have been many things to worry about on a sort of on the physical front talked about pollution and construction, uh, they've all been so far pretty much confined to Brindavan itself, which means confined to the west side of the Yamuna River. And one of the beautiful things about Brindavan, 
almost essential, I would say, is that all of that happens only on one side of the river. If you look across the river, you still have this beautiful vision of the North Indian plain and especially an alluvial plain, very sparsely populated by low-lying shrubs. The trees don't begin to emerge until you far out onto the other bank. And you can't even see villages on the other side of the river. It's this beautiful vision of the world that we've been given. What I'm afraid of, which is in conversation with the built Vrindavan, the imagined Vrindavan, the Vrindavan of pilgrimage. I think, at least for me, that back and forth between the natural world, the Braj as it was, so to speak, on the other side of the river, and the Braj that has come to be on this side of the river is deeply integral to what it means to be there. And I would want to say maybe just integral to our experience as it ought to be in the world itself. I'm a city boy. I live in a very big city. But when I do that, I just I long to see the natural world. We get to have a vision of the Hudson from where I live. It's the most precious thing. So to lose the ability to see that natural world is, seems to me to be a huge thing. One thing I would hope is that as people think about, and I hope I'm helping people to think a little bit about what's in danger of being lost in Vrindavan, one thing that could be done right now is to landmark, so to speak, the other side of the Yamuna, the site that is yet the side that is yet unbuilt, so that it wouldn't disappear before the eye in this rush to development that's occurring on the Vrindavan side of the river. I have the idea that it might help if Vrindavan could be designated <clears throat> a World Heritage Site that has some something to worry about it. Uh, also, it hasn't always gone well for World Heritage Sites, but it would serve at least to designate this as a precious space in every possible sense of the word, and the World Heritage um, designation takes that into account. And we would want them to landmark or to include in the site not just the built side of, of the river, namely the, the built Brindavan, the historic Brindavan, but a part of the other side of the river too, so that that never goes away. I don't know. I doubt that a book can have that kind of impact. Um, and, you know, I doubt that somebody like me and even a whole bunch of people like me can really stand up to the real estate industry. We've seen how the government itself is very inconsistent in its pursuit of the policies that it says it espouses. But it seems to me that at least we ought to make a try. And who knows who might be uh, much more influential than you and I in the audience listening to this. So, yes, <laughs> <laughs> we should try. Well, <laughs> could, you, <laughs> could you say a little bit about, um, a little bit by way of introduction to, and, uh, and talking about how it's changed over time in terms of the, the Rasdilas. Oh, there's not, uh, there's not, you know. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about the Rasdilas. One thing is you would know that uh, it used to be a firm covenant in Brindavan and in the bridge culture that all of the actors, so to speak, who are in the Rasdilas would be children if they are to play any part in the central drama, that's to say, the drama that uh, surrounds Krishna and Radha and the gopis. And the gopas. 
increasingly that's hard to do because of um, changes in the educational structure and also people's tastes. So there's been a kind of gradual um, aging of the Ras Lila production population, though it's still alive. And, uh, and as an art form, it's come into a bit of an eclipse. And what has risen as a sort of compensation is the institution called Bhagavat's Katha, Katha or Bhagavat Sapta, where you have an individual performer performing the Bhagavata Purana. That's an art form that is more, um, well, it requires a smaller troupe, so it's not as expensive, and it's more mobile. So in all those ways, it's less participatory than the old Rasila form, more professionalized, more, uh, shall I say, sensationalized would be too strong, but you get the sense. So, yeah, yeah, in a, yeah, right. Yeah, and actually, that's great to use that word because, in thinking about the old rasas, the the sense has always been that they should not be performances; they should somehow well up naturally from the experience of children themselves, and that does happen on stage. But uh, to have that carried over into a Bhagavat Sapta um, mode is is hard to do. There have been some there have been some good changes. One, from my point of view, one is that whereas the traditional Rasala, all performance, all, all the performers are boys or men, that has been challenged in the Bhagavat Sapta. Increasingly, you have women performers too. So that, from my point of view, is a very healthy and wonderful development. So it's a complex picture. But, um, and by, the, by no means have we said goodbye to the Rasala. It's alive and well, and it'll certainly be alive when people begin to come. I hope they'll be able to come into Brindavan for the pilgrimage season, but let's see what happens there. That's to say, the monsoon season. Well, let's see. So it's gone, but it's changed. Mm. As you touch upon, um, as you touch upon women in your last response, it's maybe a good time to talk a little bit about the experience of women, uh, in particular, uh, widows in Brindavan. Yeah, well, this is probably the the most uh, important public face of Brindavan. Um, for those who might not know in the listening audience, though I suspect just about everybody does, um, Brindavan has for a long time been a sort of refuge for women, or to put it the other way around, uh, involved in the economy of whereby, the spiritual economy, whereby uh, widows are particularly in Northeast India, but also elsewhere, unwelcome presences in the families where they have been living. So, uh, particularly from Northeast India and the, the Dayabag uh, inheritance system, um, widows have been sent away from their homes and have known that they could come to Vrindavan for refuge. They're indigent, they're poor, they can be old, though they need not be old. And in fact, Vrindavan has been a kind of uh, place where young women also, if they find themselves in intolerable marriage situations, can escape from that and come to Brindavan, but then, of course, they're on the public dole. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're making whatever lives they can for themselves in Brindavan. What's happened is that Brindavan then comes to be a symbol for the evils of the old world, as to say, the world that ought to pass away as we become conscious of its injustices, 
becomes a symbol for the old world and sometimes is thought of sort of as the old world itself, the bad old world in which religion plays some kind of role and not so covertly in uh, creating a scrim or a, a, um, a scene. It orchestrates a world where the where women who are expelled from their families can find refuge in the arms of Krishna. But that allies religion then with the a societal evil. One thing that's, so what's happened recently is a chapter just about the women of Vrindavan, not all of them widows in the book. Um, overall, I think we would have to say that the, um, the situation of women, single women living in Vrindavan has really changed a lot in the course of the last 15 years and changed for the better. There have been private donations. There have been government regulations, government regulations that are sufficiently favorable to widows that now the families who would have sent them out want them back because they want a part of the money that comes from being a widow. So that's good. But what ended up being most interesting to me about that particular subject and chapter is not just the fact that, you know, Oprah Winfrey found herself in Vrindavan back in 2012 because she too had uh, come to know about Vrindavan's fame as a, as a refuge place for widows. and She's against the social inequities that we've just been talking about. But that, uh, but that important women from very different walks of life have also become involved in trying to do something for women as they live in Vrindavan. And you just couldn't make it up. The chapter features two homes for women, broadly speaking. One was established by Mohini Giri, Dr. V. Mohini Giri, who is a, a matriarch of the Congress Party and of women's organizations, uh, equally fluent in English and in Hindi, uh, now in her 80s, an amazing person who has established uh, uh, an institution called Madham, which is basically for, not just for widows, but for women, and also has a girls' school as part of it. Very, we would say, forward-looking. It has two temples, one to Sai Baba, so not specifically Hindu, but accessible to a bunch of groups, and another that features um, quotations and uh, scriptural passages from the major religions of the world. There's no question but that this is a, a Hindu site, it's a Krishna site, but it also is embracing with regard to uh, all religious traditions of the world. That on the one hand. And then on the other hand, and as it happens on the other side of town, we have an institution called Vatsalya Gram, which was established by uh, Sadhvi Ritambara, who has a she couldn't be farther away from Congress party perspectives. She's a BJP person from way, way back and one was one of the principal orators along with Uma Bharati when the Babri Masjid was being destroyed back in 1990 and 1992. So she has this deeply convicted uh, Hindu nationalist um, element in her personality. But she too has become the an establisher of an institution for women in Vrindavan. Rather different from Madam in just about every respect. You have a sort of Shahid Sangrahale there, uh, um, a museum to depict the heroes of uh, India's national cause. And they favor 
uh, types who are in favor by the BJP. But, uh, but the core institution of Vatsalyagram has to do with young girls who are left by their mothers and in some cases fathers because they're, um, maybe they were born out of wedlock or they're going to be a drain on the family finances because of the dowry system, whatever. Here's a place where a child can be left in the middle of the night when the parents can't be seen or the mother can't be seen letting go of that child. And when the child is put in a crib from the street, a little sort of bell sounds and someone, a medical person from inside the Vatsaligram complex comes over to the crib to see how the child is doing. And that child then becomes a part of a new family, one of a number of 10-member families that um, that Sadhuri Tambra or Didima, as she's called, has established. Those families are almost all women's families. So you have single women who, three adult single women who become the senior people in the family, and the children are mostly girls, the seven remaining members of the family, though there may be a boy or two involved also. So it's an, a vision of a new family institution, which then becomes the basis for a school system, and there are other aspects to this complex as well. So as I was researching, you might say, you're finding out about the ways in which uh, institutions for women and girls now populate Brindavan, I was just amazed to see how the idea of Brindavan could serve as a magnet for these two very powerful women, Sadhvi Ritambara on the one hand and Mohinigiri on the other, with opposite political inclinations, but still with a desire to make Brindavan a part of their efforts to redo the ways in which women would be taken care of by the society as a whole. Now, I've been talking about you know, feeling this kind of sense of danger that Brindavan, as I've always known and loved it, is going away. But at the same time, it still has that kind of liveliness that keeps it alive in the minds of people as women, as different as these two actually are. Well, it's it's such a fascinating um, place because it's uh, so palpably superimposed upon the physical city. The physical space is an ideological, mythical space, um, and of course that plays out. I think in in in, in the social um, trends that, that you discuss in your book. Could you say uh, something about what you um, call in your book a theology of world heritage? Yeah. Um, I tried there to think back into some of the, um, the most important features of the story of Krishna's childhood. Um, so it's it's a chance to go back to the the Govardhanhari motif. What does it mean to create a protected place against the ravages of nature? I mean, so if that's what Indra is, that's one of the things that Indra is usually rains down this chaos about about Vrindavan. But then uh, it turns out that the chaos that's being rained on our Vrindavan is a chaos very much of our own making. Of course, it comes in the form of what we think of as the natural world, 
floods and pandemics and all of that. But, but still, these are sort of these are attacks that seem to come from the outside that need somehow to be massaged. And there's the idea that somehow it's all a part of Krishna's lila and that he can deal with it. I'm not so sure how successful that part of the book actually is. Um, to tell you the truth, it's certainly um, certainly an interesting um, series of ideas. Now, I know that you had hoped we'd go half an hour or so, so we'll be closing before too long. Um, you have a number of things to do. Um, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to share? Oh, I just now remember. There is, uh, we will attach to this, um, to this podcast description, a YouTube link whereby um, listeners can view some images. So if you want to share a little bit about the images uh, that you'd like us to refer to um, and or whatever else you want to talk about the book, and then, and then maybe we'll close. Good. Yeah, there are a couple of links that I'd love for people to be have, able to have an access to if you're interested. Uh, one is it happens to be in the form of a lecture that I did at the South, South Asia Institute of Columbia in February, where I took, uh, where I take you through a bunch of the uh, the illustrations that appear in the books. There are about seventy five illustrations in the book, most of them in color. Um, so this gives a sort of sense of what Brindavan actually looks like today. So that's one link, and the other link that I'd be delighted if anyone wanted to go to is the link that takes you to the launch for the book. There were several in India in January, but the one in Delhi was the first of them. And there, Shubha Mudgal, of all people, the great Shubha Mudgal consented to sing uh, two songs, quite different songs, actually, um, to Brindavan. So I would hope that uh, the music lovers in the group would want to go there. She sings a Surda song that you never otherwise hear sung. It's a, a holy season song to Brindavan as a sort of way of starting things up. So those are the two links. The other thing that I would say that we haven't touched on yet, uh, I can scarcely kind of find the breath to say it, but it's true. Of all the changes that we've talked about in Brindavan of the present, the one that is the most monumental and stunning has to do with Iskand. Once again, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, the so-called Hare Krishna movement. The Bangalore um, Center for ISKCON is an extremely forward-looking and vivid organization, as some of our um, viewers would know. Uh, ISKCON Bangalore has projected to build a 70, that's seven zero, a 70-story tower on what today is the outskirts of Vrindavan, 70 stories, a, a structure that um, arises up a kind of needle-like structure, an elongated temple, which will be an amazing site when it's built. But it's also a worrisome site to many people who live in Vrindavan and feel as if it's just going to change the character of the town completely. Those who are its advocates say that we just we we must do this in the world as it's coming to be as a kind of signal, a remembrance, uh, a presence of Krishna in the world 
in the skyscraper world in which we now find ourselves participants. But the great worry, of course, is that a skyscraper temple right there in Vrindavan vitiates the sense of pastoral belonging that is at the core of the idea of Vrindavan itself. One way that the projected temple deals with that is to build in a lot of theme park features whereby you have representations of the pastoral. And they definitely are trying to make it a green structure so that it uh, actually stands as a kind of beacon in that way. But there's a lot of worry about this structure, and I wonder actually how it will come out. It's a, a dramatic, as dramatic an example as that there can be. Uh, example of confrontations that face us in thinking about what Vrindavan now is and what it's going to be. So it's just something to watch as the world develops before our eyes. And uh, you and I will be watching at the same time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, uh, a fascinating encapsulation of so many tensions of uh, Related to this project, uh, this this proposed tower of tensions between the future and the past, uh, this this idea of reaching the heavens uh, via skyscraper. <laughs> um, the Tower of it, Babel does come to mind, but never mind. <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> no, you didn't say it. Maybe I didn't say it. Who did say that? I, I don't know. Or the ziggurats <laughs> of Babylonia. I mean, yeah, really. <laughs> There's so much there. It's a very rich um, development. Um, oh, before historical. we leave that, I know that we're over time now, but the, no, no, we're not. I've got. I've okay, got well, the time. Just one would... last thing. In the 16th well, century, let us remember a, a similar ziggurat, if we can call it that, was also built, built because of a concordat between the Mughal state and the person of the Emperor Akbar and his primary general, who was Rajaman Singh of Amer in what would become Jaipur. So you had the building of an really enormous temple, the temple of Govindadev, to the Lord Krishna to memorialize this great victory over, as it happens, another Hindu king, the king of Mewar, and to create a kind of representation of Hindu greatness in the middle of, right between two of the principal Mughal capitals, one in Agra and one in Delhi. So this idea of creating a beacon for Krishna on a sort of uh, national and even international stage, the Mughal Empire extended up into Afghanistan, uh, is not a new idea. How we feel about it when it gets recast, redone in the era of skyscrapers, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but maybe it's a little bit reassuring to know that somehow we got over this in the 16th century and we're still talking about it today. And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps someone from the 16th century would would uh, lament at the various uh, ways in which uh, the Vrindavan of the 70s was different from um, their vision. So. I'm sure that's true. I can't help thinking about the people who had been performing, as I think they probably already were, Rasalilas in the 16th century, and saw this enormous structure going up right before their eyes. But let's remember who the administrator of that temple was. It was Rupa Goswami, Rupa Goswami, one of the great, great theologians of uh, of the Gaudiya tradition and of Krishna theology, broadly speaking. There's a lot we don't know. 
Mm. Very, very fascinating. Very quick question before we sign off. Um, are you currently working on any exciting projects? Oh, Lord. The one or two that I had thought I would be making my way into this summer involved travel. So those are suddenly off the desk. But I'm very lucky to have a project that ties me back to my, I mentioned one mentor in the form of Srivats Goswami. The other one is the poet Surdas. There was a moment in Mewar, in Udaipur, around the cusp of the 18th century, when there was an explosion of Surdas's poetry into art, individual art. So this is a project where um, I'm working with the art historian Nirja Pudar, where we'll be making available in book form, I trust, and I hope there will be a web component to it, a visual component to it, of a, a digital component so that we can actually see it. There are some 150 extant pages of Surdas poems that suddenly make their appearance in Mewar at that point in time. So this is a project that asks what happens when a poem is transferred into a visual medium? Does it become a different poem? Uh, it's, a, it's the question of multimedia experience in relation to the poetry of Krishna. So that's what I hope is going to keep you busy for the next month or two as we see what happens on the COVID front. And I must say, having, having Surdas as a companion and especially being able to talk about some of these translations uh, with Rupert Snell, who's over in Britain at the moment, these are great things. Sounds like an absolutely fascinating uh, project. Uh, sounds like you have um, no shortage of ideas for future work and certainly no wealth of, of experience and interest and passion that you bring to your work. Uh, for those of you listening, once again, we've been speaking with Dr. John Stratton Holly, also known as Jack Holly, uh, who is Claire to Professor of Religion at um, Barnard College at Columbia University. Um, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. <laughs> Thank you, Rajan. I love the background noise there. We had a truck there saying, come on, it's time to be done. <laughs> you would think we were in India for a moment. Right away. <laughs> with, the, with the honks, uh, with, the, with the horns honking in the background. Anyhow, for those of you out there, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, take care. Thank you, Raj. <laughs> <laughs>